Lord, we dare not even open up your word without asking you to bless it. Father, lest we get way out ahead of you and get the cart before the horse and start running off all kinds of weird interpretations and thoughts of our own. Father, we, we ask that you will reign us in, Father, by your Spirit. And that you will teach us and speak to us tonight. And that even in these chapters of uh, rebellion and warfare and usurpation and, and all the mess in David's household, that, uh, that you will touch us each individually tonight. And that we can hear from you, Lord. Father, I know my brothers and sisters here tonight are not here to hear from me. We all want to hear from your Spirit. Lord, I pray for those who have been going through and who are acutely aware of exactly where we are in the study of David's life, that you will continue our understanding and deepen it. But Father, I also pray for those who tonight are, are here maybe joining us for the first time. And, and I pray that they're coming into the middle of something that, that what is heard and understood would be clearly from your Spirit and would be, um, Father, a, a passionate and tender touch from you tonight. We thank you for your word, Lord, and we, I for one, don't believe worship is over. I believe we continue on. And so we continue to worship you and praise you for the things set before us and just ask that you'll open our eyes wide and our ears would be unclogged to hear the message of truth. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. Let's jump right in. Now when David had passed a little beyond the summit. Now the summit is the Mount of Olives. As David is fleeing out of Jerusalem in his late 50s now. And a king for a long time, but his, his third-born son, Absalom, is usurping the throne. We talked about last week, Absalom has run a pretty darn good campaign. And he's got Israel all on his side. So as Absalom is pouring into Jerusalem, David is pouring out of Jerusalem with his 600 faithful, mighty men, as they're called. Did I already offend you, Cheryl? <laughs> <laughs> so tired of hearing about this David thing around the house all the time. <laughs> well, hey, it's good to see you today. <laughs> what was I saying? I don't even know what I was saying. Oh, Absalom's in to Jerusalem. David's out. So David has now climbed the Mount of Olives. He's, he is coming over. And, and the summit here that we're talking about is the summit of the Mount of Olives. And it says, Behold, Ziba, which is either a servant's name or a drink. I'm not sure. But Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of saddled donkeys. And on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a jug of wine. The king said to Ziba, why do you have these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, and where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he's staying in Jerusalem, for he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth, is yours. And Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your sight, O my Lord, the King. Remember Mephibosheth? Second Samuel chapter 9, Mephibosheth. 
the crippled son of Jonathan, son of Saul, to whom David said, I want to show favor to someone. Is there anybody left in the household of my friend Jonathan? Anyone left to whom I can show chesed? That Hebrew word, loving kindness. Anyone? And they found this servant, this guy, Ziba. Ziba came to him and he said, is there anyone left? Ziba said, well, there is my master's son. His name is Mephibosheth and he's been hiding out all these years and he's a cripple. David said, bring him. So David brought Mephibosheth in, the sole surviving heir of Jonathan. And David does three marvelous things. We talked about this three or four Sundays back. David shows great kindness in restoration. He restores to Mephibosheth all of the lands that belonged to the king Saul before David. An amazing gift. Restoration. He also gives him a reservation, a standing invitation to eat at the king's table every night from there forward. And Mephibosheth does. When we looked at this, how Mephibosheth tended to be, I think, the first one there. And how when this crippled boy is sitting at the table, he's no different than anybody else. You can't tell if someone's crippled when they're seated at the table along with the rest of the king's sons. So David gave him a restoration of the lands and a reservation at his table and finally adoption. Mephibosheth was brought in as one of the king's own sons. An amazing kindness was given. And as we finish that story, 2 Samuel chapter 9, it looked pretty good for Mephibosheth. In fact, I think I made the statement and from there on out, Mephibosheth ate at the king's table every night. And had the grace and the blessing of David upon his head. But tragically, sometimes things change. And Ziba, the servant that David put in charge of Mephibosheth's household. The man, he said, okay, I want you and your sons and your servants to run Mephibosheth's household, to work his land, to take care of everything for Mephibosheth. Ziba, this same servant, now sees an opportunity. As there is an eruption of problems in the land of Israel and here in Jerusalem, Absalom is rushing in, David is rushing out, and Ziba says, here's my chance. I can go around and get some inheritance for myself. And so he brings the two donkeys, he brings the food, he comes up to David and says, here's the deal, Mephibosheth, he's staying. He is shifting loyalties now to Absalom, which was a lie. As you'll see a little bit later on, not true. But in the midst of this turmoil, Ziba is looking out for number one. I pause to point something out here that I think is really important. There are a lot of Christians who think that this is a possibility in their lives. A lot of believers who think, you know, I've been graced by the Lord. He's shown me loving kindness. He brought me into His table. But in a time of turmoil, in a time of, of betrayal, in a problem... I might lose my inheritance. Here comes the servant Ziba, lying, deceitful. And he gets the whole inheritance. David says, fine, Ziba, it's yours. If Mephibosheth is switching sides, then you have the inheritance of the land. It's all for you. And we think about poor Mephibosheth, who now has nothing when just moments before had everything. Mephibosheth, the restored, reserved, adopted son of David is now looked out in the cold and far too many adopted children question their place in the family and I'm talking about us because we're adopted in to become fellow heirs Paul says with Jesus and yet there are so many of us who from time to time say yeah but I don't know I had a bad week last week I made some stupid things recently once saved always saved It's, it's a nice cushy theology but 
But is it true? Can Satan come along like Ziba and undermine what Jesus has already done? Can my standing reservation be revoked? Can I lose my precious adoption? And the answer in the Bible is very clear. You can't lose your salvation. You can leave it. As I've said many times, God is not going to drag anybody kicking and screaming into heaven. He's not going to force you past the pearly gates. But He's also not going to rip it away from you and give it to another. Now some people will say, okay, but explain then Philippians 2.12. I know some of you are out there and you were thinking this very thing. Philippians 2.12 that says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does a verse like that do in a book about grace? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling? That sounds like i got to work hard for it, man. And i got to fear because if I don't work hard enough, boom, it's gone. It will be taken and given to another. I want you to understand this verse. It's so important. Where Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Work out. Unfortunately, some have taken this to mean work for. And that's not what it says. It says work out. What Paul is saying is to live as a saved person. Work out in your salvation. You have your salvation. Now work out in it. Grow in it. Be strong in it. Expand. Make your muscles bigger in your salvation. Your spiritual muscle. He's saying to this church in Philippi, look, you have your salvation. Don't sit back. Don't start to atrophy. Work out in your salvation. You have the safety net of eternity right underneath you. So jump, man. Jump. Go for it. Be radical for Jesus and don't worry about losing what He's given you, that precious gift. It is yours. Work out in it and get stronger. Practice saved living. That's a good way to live. Okay, but what about the fear and trembling part? Well, you work out your salvation in fear and trembling because you recognize your own inability to save yourself. It's getting so close to the edge that you see how far a drop it really was and you go... Oh, praise God, I'm saved. Thank God, I'm saved. Philippians 2.13, Paul says, Hey, it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And listen to the context in which Paul makes this whole statement. A couple verses earlier in Philippians 2.10. And by the way, I apologize for us not having the verses up there. The bulb went out on our, on our little deal up there. So if you're a note taker, take them quick tonight. Because there's a bunch of them. Philippians 2.10, Paul says, At the name of Jesus, and this is the context, remember, for working out my salvation in fear and trembling, right before that, Paul says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In other words... One day every knee will bow. But for you who believe in Jesus Christ as God and Savior, for you who are saved, bow now. Bow now. Don't wait for it. Get on your knees before the Lord. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I call it Adventures on the Gump Bus. We we had a trip. When I was in youth ministry, probably about a decade ago now, A trip where we went up Big Bear Mountain in Southern California, and it was snowing going up, and it was snowing coming down. 
The reason why I call this, this whole thing, and I have a picture that has a, a caption under it that says, Adventures in the Gump Bus, like Forrest Gump, because our driver was Forrest Gump. <laughs> I kid you not. We got on the bus, and I said, Hey, my name's Rick, and he says, Forrest, Forrest Gump. I don't know what he said, but it was like that. And I remember walking down the aisle going... Oh, great, great. Well, at least we had a good retreat weekend to go to heaven, you know, and we're all going to die here. We head down the mountain, and the, the real problem for concern was it was snowing, Big Bear Mountain, snow's coming down, and the driver, I said, you, you going to put chains on this thing? Oh, we don't need chains. There's so many teenagers in this bus. It's nice and heavy. Dang. Sounds terrific. So we're going down the mountain. And we come around a corner and a car had slid into a ditch and the bus driver sees it at the last minute and swerves. Of course. Okay. And the mountain's on this side and the cliff is on this side. He swerves this way. The back of the bus hit the side of the mountain, swerves around the car and begins sliding across toward the cliff. On the ice. Now there just so happened, we would not even be meeting tonight, because there just so happened to be a turnout right there that the bus slid into and bumped into the guardrail and stopped. And I heard kids saying things that, you know, moments before we were worshiping God. And all over that bus, you know, expletives that I cannot even repeat right now. And And so I stood up and I condemned every single one of them. But I tell you that story to tell you this. That we were saved. But we were trembling after the fact when we realized how close we had come to death. That's how you work out your salvation in fear and trembling. We are saved. But man, I realize how close I came to a state of eternal lostness. Praise God, I'm saved. But that makes me tremble. It makes me tremble in His grace. It makes me tremble in the realization that I have just been saved. Man, by the skin of my teeth. Praise God. We may shake, gang, at the realization of how close to hell we have come. But the truth is, listen, though we shake, we receive an unshakable kingdom. I love this passage in the Bible, Hebrews 12:25. The writer says, "See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven." And his voice shook the earth then, but now his promise saying, "Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven." There's a shaking that is coming. But this expression, yet once more, denotes the removal of those things which can be shaken, as in created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. And then he says this fantastic verse, Hebrews 10, 20, or 12, 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which may, we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The zebras are going to come along in your life, and they may shake you up, and they may make you from time to time question your, your position before the Lord, but understand this. We receive an unshakable kingdom, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we can work out in that. And we can grow up in that. And we can be confident in it as we go forward from the, for the Lord. Remember Romans 11:29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. So when God calls you to be His own, He does not let go. 
And we may wander off. We all do from time to time. But God does not let go. Come, 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 come on back here. Come back here. Now let's work out in your salvation. By the way, one quick note. David's decision to give Ziba all of Mephibosheth's lands and holdings is a rash decision made in a moment of turmoil and tumult and that's the worst time to make a decision. He is fleeing for his life when Ziba comes to him. Ziba tells this lie and David doesn't even have the wherewithal, the patience to sit down, pray about it and discern the truth at this point. He's in a rush. He's in a panic. Proverbs 29.20 says, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Ecclesiastes 5.1 Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. And draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know, they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. In other words, if you don't have time to pray, you probably should delay. David didn't have time to even think about what was going on. So he blurts out, fine, Mephibosheth stuff, it's yours, man, take it, whatever. And off over the summit he goes. Verse 5. When King David came to Baharim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemiah, the son of Gerah, and he came out cursing continually as he came. He must have just stepped off the gump bus. Verse 6. He threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were at his right hand and at his left. Thus Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the blood shed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and the Lord has given your kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom and behold you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed this guy Shimei is a self-proclaimed prophet a voice of chastisement against David and his reign verse 9 says then Abishai the son of Zeruiah said to the king why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. <laughs> I love Abishai. And this is the same guy who was standing there with David, you may recall, when they're looking down on a sleeping Saul. And Abishai says, Can I just stick my spear through his head right into the ground? Can I do that? Can I? Can I? Can I? Uh-huh. You know? And David says, Abishai, chill out, man. So he's doing it again. Can I just go cut off this guy's head? But the king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? In other words... What am I going to do with you, Abishai? What am I going to do with you, man? Abishai is impetuous. And David says, dude, chill out. And then David goes on to take a very godly perspective in the face of this cursing and this criticism that's going on. Three ways to respond. And by the way, you might think about this. If you're in a place in your life where you're being put down or cut down or attacked or criticized by others, David does three things here, says three things that are pretty telling as to how to handle criticism. First thing. Verse 10, he says, If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David then who shall say, why have you done so? First thing to do when you're being cut down, criticized, look up. Look up. Lord, is this something you want me to hear? Is this criticism, though it hurts, though it's painful, though it's coming from somewhat of a jerk, is it something you need me to hear? 
is so, Lord, I want to know that this is from you. Sometimes the voice of the critic, even when it stings, can be of the Lord. So look up. Father, is there something I can learn from this criticism? Secondly, look around. Look around. Verse 11, David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Look up, look around. Does my life situation merit this criticism that I'm receiving? David says, hey, you know, the guy's not very far off. My house is a shambles. It's a mess. There is bloodshed in my house. Maybe I'm just getting exactly what I received. David's eyes are wide open. My own son is against me. These curses coming from this guy, man, I deserve much more. And that's a hard pill for my pride to swallow. There may be, in fact, a reality that I deserve far worse than the criticism I'm receiving that's being leveled against me. Paul says in Romans 7.18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. The good that I want to do, I do not do. I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And I think we also have talked about this recently, that what I deserve... What I deserve is criticism and condemnation. What I get is grace and forgiveness. I'm not getting what I deserve. I'm getting what God in His mercy chooses to give. So David, he looks up. Is this from the Lord? He looks around. Look at my life situation. There's some value. There's some merit to this criticism. And finally, the third thing David does is he leaves it to the Lord. I like this. Verse 12. Perhaps the Lord will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. Every criticism is an opportunity for good to come from the Lord. Every put down is a chance for the Lord to lift up our heads. Every negative shot across the bow of my life is opportunity for the Lord to step in and be my shield and my salvation. And so David says, you know what, this cursing is bad. He's running up and down the side of the hill, throwing rocks at us, shouting stuff. It doesn't really feel that good, but perhaps this is just an opportunity for God to bring good into my life instead of this cursing. You know the verse, Romans 8.28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so if you are being criticized, cursed, railed against... Look at it as an opportunity for God to make this evil, icky, bad thing good. I did say icky. I just said that. And my friends, the greatest good that comes from criticism is this. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If someone ever, ever gives a single curse toward you or criticism because you are a believer in Jesus Christ, praise God. What a great place to be. In fact, I encourage you if someone does that to say, thank you so much, you just made my day. And walk away with them going, I don't get that. Verse 13, so David and his men went along the way and Shimei went along the hillside parallel with him and as he went he cursed and cast stones and he threw dust at him. (laughs) 
I mean, this guy's just going off. Why is he throwing dust? Because in those days, to throw dust was the same as saying, I wish you were buried. I wish you were dead and gone. I'm going to try and stone you first, and that's not working. I'm going to throw dust at you. And Sunday we talked about this. A bitter root produces deadly fruit. Remember Hebrews 12:15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. In Ephesians 4.31, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Shimei. Shimei is not prophesying from the Lord, but from his own pain. Shimei, if you look back, it tells us that uh, Shimei was of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, son of Gera, verse 5 tells us. He's of Saul's household. Saul's household that fell apart when David came into his kingdom. This guy is functioning out of his woundedness, out of his anger, out of his bitterness, and he's returning this to David, and a bitter root produces deadly fruit. Shimei is prophesying but he's no prophet. Now I was thinking about this this past week. There's a there's a lot of prophesying that goes on in the body of Christ today. And there's a lot of wrong prophesying that goes on in the body of Christ. A lot of churches where people say, Thus saith the Lord, and then go off to rail on the rest of the church. And people hear that kind of thing and walk out going, Wow, that was a little painful to listen to this morning. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 24. He says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an undignified man enters, he's convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, so that he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm or has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Listen to this. Paul says, listen, let all things be done for edification, not for tearing down. Yeah. It is not from the Lord, my opinion, it is not from the Lord when someone stands up and pretends to be a prophet and rails on other Christians. There is nothing edifying about that. It's not prophecy. Prophecy may bring about conviction, but prophecy never brings about condemnation. The Lord is about conviction. He wants us to be convicted in our lives so that we will work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He wants us to sense His presence and to be able to discern right and wrong and our poor choices from our good choices. But the Lord doesn't want us walking in condemnation, which is a completely different thing. Conviction causes you to look up to the Lord. Condemnation causes you to look down and drag your feet. And the person who comes along prophesying, saying they have a word from the Lord, and then, ch- then go right about ripping into you, yeah. probably are not a prophet from the Lord at all. And may very well be functioning like Shimei out of their pain. But David, I love David here. He's not a perfect man by any means. He's got a lot of sin in his life, a lot of struggle. But in this moment, he responds so well. He remains unshaken. In fact, he remains confident through this whole thing that God's going to do what God wants to do and if God wants him back on the throne in Jerusalem, he will be. How can David have this confidence? Because God told him that's what's going to happen. Back in chapter 8, chapter 7, God began to reveal to David, I'm going to build your house. And this is going to be an eternal thing. He makes the Davidic covenant that promise to David that your household, your throne, is an eternal throne. 
So even as David is running and David is upset and, and his life is shaken, the kingdom is unshaken. It cannot be shaken. David's refusal to revile in return, in return it's, a, it's a Christ-like thing to do. Proverbs 10.19 says, Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. So for those of us who like to talk a lot, watch out. Where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. Now think about Jesus. What did he do on the way to the cross? Was he shouting at the Romans? Jerks! Get this thing out of my back. I refuse to do this. You guys don't know who you're... Do you know who you're talking to here? Remember Robert Schuler on the airplane a little while ago? A couple of years back. Gets on the airplane, he starts really going off. Let's hit the news. Robert Schuler, you know, Mr. Pastoral Peace. And he, he's on in first class and he starts really getting upset because he's not getting what he wants. I don't know, it's free champagne or something. And, and he's talking to the stewardess and he says, Do you realize who you're talking to? She goes, Yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, Mr. Schuler, please sit down. We're about to take off. <laughs> Jesus didn't do that. While being reviled, Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 2, he did not revile in return. Remember the verse, like a lamb led to the slaughter or a sheep to the shearers, he remained silent. He didn't fight back. Jesus, why didn't you fight back? He said at one point, you know, I could have called 12,000 angels down to defend me. Why not? That would have been really cool. You know, in the Passion, wouldn't that have been a great scene? And people dying and angels going, yeah, you know, on the swords and, and Jesus just standing back. That's what I'm saying. But he didn't. He remained silent. He doesn't revile in return. Why? Because he knew he was the victor. For the joy set before him, the Bible tells us. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. He didn't revile. He didn't fight back. You've been called for this purpose, Peter said, since Christ who suffered for you also left an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges Righteously, First Peter two, twenty one through twenty three. Verse fourteen, going on, it tells us then that the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there. David ignores the curses of Shimei, moves on, and ends up refreshed because he looks up, he looks around, and he leaves it to the Lord. Verse fifteen. Well, then Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, entered Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. Talked about Ahithophel on Sunday. Now it came about when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Absalom knows this guy Hushai was a close friend of David's, just like Ahithophel was. These two guys, interesting, both were very close friends of David. One, Ahithophel, betrays him. The other one, Hushai, is a plant. He's there on purpose. In fact, if you look back, it tells us, um, back here in the previous chapter, chapter 15, that Hushai comes in about verse 32. He comes along to to David and he meets him. and, And David says, if you pass over with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I'll be your servant, then you can help me out. David sends Hushai back, in essence, to be a spy. And so Hushai begins to spy. 
he comes to Absalom and verse 17 Absalom said to Hushai is this your loyalty to your friend why did you not go with your friend and Hushai said to Absalom no for whom the Lord this people and all the men of Israel have chosen his I will be and with him I will remain besides whom should I serve should I not serve in the presence of his son as I have served in your father's presence so I will be in your presence but we know Hushai is a spy he's a plant for David by the way that's the problem with rebellion is you never really know who you can trust once you begin to rebel once you begin to enter into a world of deceit you don't know who you can trust I know some people I have a close personal friend not so close anymore but who years ago was a close friend and these days is so full of her own lies so full of her own deceit she can't even see her way through it she can't even keep up with all the lies and she has nobody in her world to trust and that's where Absalom is he, he ends up trusting Hushai because how does he know how does he know if this guy is a true friend or a spy he doesn't know but he trusts him anyway well in verse 20 going on Absalom said to Ahithophel give your advice what shall we do we talked about this Sunday let me just read through it Ahithophel said to Absalom go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, that is of David's house, David's palace, and Absalom went to his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Sounds gross, but as we've studied before, this was something that the kings would do, especially in the pagan realms around them. When they came into their own, they would sleep with the wives and or concubines or harem of the previous king, kind of proving their authority. And that's what he's doing here. So the advice of Ahithophel, verse 23, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired the word of God. So it was all the advice that of Ahithophel was regarded this way by both David and Absalom. Verse 1 of 17 Furthermore, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Please let me choose 12,000 men that I may arise and pursue David tonight. I'll come upon him while he's weary and exhausted and terrify him so all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike down the king alone and I will bring back all the people to you. The return of everyone depends on the man you seek. Then all the people will be at peace. And so the plan pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Well, then Absalom said, Well, now call Hushai the archite also. Let's hear what he has to say. So when Hushai had come to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him. Ahithophel has spoken thus. Shall we carry out his plan? If not, you speak. So Hushai, remember who is on the side of David, said to Absalom, This time the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good. Moreover, Hushai said, You know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are fierce, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Now it's funny as well, Hushai is saying this, David is dealing with Shimei. You know, he's being stoned and having dust thrown at him and being cursed at. He does not look like a fierce bear protecting her cubs. But Hushai is kind of getting getting in here with Absalom and he says, Your father is an expert in warfare and will not spend the night and will not spend the night with the people. Behold, he has now hidden himself in one of the caves or in another place, and it will be when he falls on them at the first attack that whoever hears it will say, There's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Even the one who's valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will completely lose heart. For all Israel knows your father's a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. But I counsel you that all Israel be surely gathered to you, from Dan even to Beersheba, 
as the sand is by the sea in abundance, and that you personally go into battle. You're setting him up. So we shall come to him in one of the places where he can be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground, and of him and of all the men who are with him, not even one will be left. And if he withdraws into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will drag it into the valley until there's not one small stone found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. Why? Because Hushai is appealing to their pride. We can have a massive slaughter if we do it my way. Let's just wait just a little longer and we can just wipe them all out. And he knows. He knows what David is doing and where David's going. Now it tells us at the end of verse 14 something interesting. It says, The Lord had ordained to thwart the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring calamity upon Absalom. Now listen, there's something we need to learn here about the way we pray. About the way we approach our Father in prayer. When David learned that his trusted advisor and close friend Ahithophel had turned against him to join Absalom, back in chapter 15, verse 31, it tells us that David said, O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Lord, here's my prayer. Here's what I want you to do. Make the words that come out of Ahithophel's mouth stupid. So when he tells Absalom what to do, it just sounds dumb. God didn't do that. As a matter of fact, the advice of Ahithophel at the beginning of chapter 17 is sharp. It's clever, it's cunning, it's wise, it's strategic. God did not answer David's prayer the way David prayed it. He didn't make Ahithophel's counsel foolish. Instead, God thwarted his counsel altogether. What are you saying? I'm saying the Lord doesn't need your help. I'm saying God doesn't need my advice on how to bring about a desired end. He needs me to trust that he knows what he's doing. There are often times in our prayer lives when we, we struggle with, we, we're trying to tell the Lord what we want him to do instead of, instead of taking the example of Jesus who prayed in Matthew 6.10, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. And that's really good news. Because what that means is I pray and then Jesus intercedes saying, Father, Father, what, what Rick means to say is this. I don't know what he's saying. I know what he's saying. And this is what he means. And God goes, oh, okay, that's good. That's good. That Rick's a pretty sharp guy. And Jesus goes, I got him covered. <laughs> Jesus prayed in Matthew twenty six thirty nine, not as I will, but as you will. And I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, I promise you, if we will begin to learn to pray that way, we will see the hand of God in our lives. Not as I will, Lord, but as you will. What do you want, Father? How do you want this to go? Show me what your will is. Forget about mine. Lord, I want your will for my life. Going on, verse 15 of chapter 17. Then Hushai said to Zadok and to Abiathar the priest, This is what Ahithophel counseled Absalom and the elders of Israel, and this is what I have counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend the night at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means cross over, or else the king and all the people who are with him will be destroyed. Now Jonathan and Ahimeaz, these are the two sons of the two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, Jonathan and Ahimeaz, verse 17, were staying at Enrogel. And a maidservant would go and tell them, and then they would go and tell King David, for they could not be seen entering the city. But a lad did see them and told Absalom. 
So the two of them departed quickly and came to a house of a man in Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard and they went down into it. They're hiding now. And the woman took a covering and spread it over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it so that nothing was known. And then Absalom's servants came and the woman at the house said, uh, and they said to her, Where are Ahimeaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They have crossed the brook of water. And they had crossed water. It was just the well water, not the brook of water, as she implied. So they searched and could not find them, and they returned to Jerusalem. It tells us it came about after they departed. They came up out of the well and went and told King David, and they said to David, Arise, cross over the water quickly, for thus Ahithophel has counseled against you. All this time, by the way, this, this betrayal by Ahithophel is sinking in to David. As we studied on Sunday, Ahithophel's bitterness growing in his life for a decade made him betray David, made him turn on David. And David's reaction to this, he is just blown away. He just doesn't understand what's happening, how this could be. Psalm 3 and Psalm 55, the two psalms to check that David wrote as he was on the run at this very time. So it says, David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan, and by dawn not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. Now, verse 23, When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, he arose and went to his home to his city, and set his house in order, and strangled himself. Thus he died, and was buried in the grave of his father. Again, from Sunday we talked about this. The bitter end of Ahithophel. And I encourage you, if you have any struggle whatsoever with bitterness, go to the website and listen to that teaching. Because we talk about the biblical response to bitterness. And how the bitter root produces a deadly fruit. In Ahithophel's life, he was bitter and angry toward David. Now David and Ahithophel were good friends. He was his trusted advisor. And those of you who are here Sunday, you know what happened, what it was that caused Ahithophel to turn in his anger against David. And it's very simply this, we find out from Scripture that Ahithophel was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And as Bathsheba's grandfather, when he saw what David did to her, taking him into into his house and lying with her, then having her husband murdered, and all the betrayal of David... Ahithophel began to seed with this bitterness. You can compare 2 Samuel 11 verse 3. It talks about Bathsheba's father being a man named Eliam. And 2 Samuel 23 verse 34 that tells us that Ahithophel's son was that same man Eliam. Therefore Bathsheba is granddaughter to Ahithophel. But we also saw an interesting pattern here in Ahithophel's death. Let me point it out once again. Some things in verse 23 that are very similar to the death of Jesus. We see Jesus' counsel, like Ahithophel's, is rejected. Jesus came to all mankind and gave counsel and no one would listen to him. We see, like Ahithophel, Jesus saddled a donkey and rode to his own city. Like Ahithophel, Jesus set his house in order on that Thursday night he was betrayed. Meeting with the apostles, setting it all up, saying this is what it's going to be like. Here's the kingdom. Here's how you're ready. And then Jesus died in bitterness. Just like Ahithophel, though not his own bitterness, but your bitterness and mine. And that's the key. That's the key to dealing with bitterness in our lives. Is Jesus died for it. To take it from us. 1 Peter 3.18 Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God 
So Jesus not only freed me from my sin, but He also freed me from all sin, which even means sin that someone in here might commit against me, or sin I might commit against one of you. Guess what? You've already been freed from it. Which doesn't mean that I can sin all the more. But I've been freed. Freed from sin, freed from bitterness, because Jesus took it all. Now, we're just going to finish up chapter 17 and be done tonight, but these last few verses are interesting to me. Because they show us something that, you know, probably those of us who are trying to learn how to work out our salvation should pay some close attention to. It says in verse 24 that David then came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. Absalom set Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Now Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Ethra the Israelite who went into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, the sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. <laughs> and the whole reason why verse 25 is in here is to give you just a little background of Amasa. This guy is an illegitimate child. He's an illegitimate Israelite. Okay, He's kind of a messed up dude. And we're going to see in a couple of Sundays how Joab makes a mess of Amasa. Verse 26, And Israel and Absalom, they camped in the land of Gilead. So Israel and Absalom are there. They're getting ready to fight. Their tents are pitched. They're all spread out there, ready to meet David and his men on the battlefield. David's tired. He's worn out. They have no supplies. They're exhausted. They're weary. Verse 27 tells us, Now, when David had come to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah, of the sons of Ammon, Matir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, And Barzillai, the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds and basins, pottery, wheat and barley and flour, parched grain, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. That's so interesting to me. These three guys... They get for themselves, at least in my estimation, a place of honor in the kingdom. Three men, Shobi, Makir, and Barzillai. Which, by the way, those of you expecting, and there's a growing number of you these days at the bridge, those are some great names for firstborn kids. (laughs) Shobi, Makir, and Barzillai. Love those names. Shobi... I want you to think about these guys. These guys have come together and they brought all these supplies and gifts to David. Not a single one of them are Israelites. They're all outsiders, all Gentiles, all pagans, and yet they somehow see a need to come and help David out. To serve and to refresh the king of Israel. Shobi is the son of Nahash from Rabbah. I don't know if that rings a bell for you, but Nahash was the king of the Ammonites. Nahash's son there in Rabbah His son Hanun, who is Shobi's brother, was the ruler of the Ammonite who cut off the beards of the men of David that David sent up to console him when Nahash died. David sent some men, remember that story? And so Hanun thought he'd have a little bit of fun with them, and so he cut off their beards and he short-skirted their robes. David in turn waged war with Hanun and wiped him out and wiped out the armies of Ammon, but here comes Shobi, the other son, an Ammonite, serving David. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why would he do that? Then we have Makir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. 2 Samuel chapter 9 tells us Makir was the guardian and protector of Mephibosheth. 
Makir was the guy who was taking care of Mephibosheth for that 10-15 years that this crippled child had to be hidden away this son of Jonathan in the house of Saul and so Makir worked all these years for over a decade caring for Mephibosheth he comes along to help out David and finally Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim. We find out something interesting about Barzillai in the next chapter, verse 32 of chapter 19, which tells us the following. Now Barzillai was very old. I love how the Bible just tells it as it is. He was very old, 80 years old, and he had sustained the king while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very great man. So we have these three guys. We got Shobi of the enemies of David, of the Ammonites. We have Machir, and we have Barzillai. And all three of them had what you could call valid excuses for not serving the king. Excuses that may sound familiar. Shobi could have said, David hurt me. David hurt my family. David brought pain to people I love. Let him die on his own. Why should I help him? He hurt me. Makir could have said, look, I've looked after a cripple for a long time. I've done my bit for king and country. Let someone else go and help. Barzillai could have said, I'm just too darn old for this. I'm 80, man. Send some of the young guys to carry all these supplies down there. What are you asking me for? Shobi, Makir, and Barzillai. And each one of these guys could have used familiar excuses for staying out of it, or at least remaining neutral. That is, sitting back and atrophying instead of working out there are showbies in the church who say I have been hurt by church people why should I help I've gone to church and I've been hurt in church this whole kind of movement in the church to try and help those who have been hurt by the church well welcome to the club how many of you have not been hurt at some way or in some fashion in church I mean, guess what? Church people are just a bunch of sinners who know how to hurt other people just as well as non-church people. We all are capable of that. Don't think when you walk in the doors of any church that suddenly it's just, oh, heaven, you know? (laughs) Not yet. That day is coming. But we are still capable of bringing pain on each other, and yet some will say, hey, I'm done with church people. Why should I help you when so many of your kind have hurt me? Well, Shobi could have said that. David, you wiped out my family. You hurt me. I hope you die. Good luck. Someone like Makir could say, you know, I, I helped out last time. I took care. I did crippled ministry for years. So now I just want to hang out and relax and let someone else take care of, you know, the ministry to the cripples or maybe the children's ministry. I served for years and years in the children's ministry. Well, not for you, Michelle. I helped out and did so much for those kids and other churches. And what did I get? But you know, lollipops stuck in my hair. I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm done. Let someone else go into it. Or the Barzillais who are just like, man, I'm, I'm too old. I'm tired. It's time for a break in my life. These three guys are great examples of men who saw a need and met it, regardless of past hurts, past service, or past years. They still went and served the king. What a great example for us. You know, it doesn't matter where you've been. Oh, it matters to the Lord if you've been hurt. He wants to heal that. But I'll tell you what, one of the best ways to get a hurt healed in church is ministry. It's service. 
one of the best ways to find healing in your life is to stop looking at your life and start caring about other people's lives and you'll start to realize, wow, I don't have it as bad as I thought I did. These other people are way more messed up. They need help. And off you go. You're serving. It's a good thing. I helped last time and I'm just tired. You know what? Those who serve discover something amazing. That it energizes their spiritual walk. So wow. I've been involved serving. It's when we don't serve that we atrophy. It's when we sit and we just take in and we don't give out that after a while... You want to go to church tonight, hun? No, I don't really want to. American Idol's on. Well, let's just stay home. You know? So I'm just kind of tired. It's interesting to me that those of you, and I, I see this all the time, those of you who especially tend to show up midweek and you're diving into the Word, tend to be the servants. I see this. And I praise God for it. The Lord has not called us to slow down. You know, what what do you do? What do you give the king who has everything? These three men go to find David in the wilderness and they serve him and they refresh him. Not unlike another king who was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was weary and he was tired and he was worn. And God sent the angels to refresh him. Shobi, Makir, and Barzillai are angelic in the way they serve their king. And some people might say, well, how in the world am I supposed to serve my king? I mean, come on. King Jesus has everything. What could I possibly do for him? Let me read this to you. Matthew chapter 25, in verse 31. Jesus is giving a parable, and he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What kingdom is that? It's the kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is a guarantee. That is a promise of the Lord, the kingdom that's coming. And he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Now, something that's important to understand, this parable has been misinterpreted over the years. This parable has been misapplied. Some say that this is judgment day. And that the true test of whether or not you're worthy to enter into the kingdom is is how you served. Did you feed the poor? Did you care for the sick? Did you visit those in prison? Did you clothe the naked? Did you do all these things? Because if you did, then you have a place in the kingdom. But if you didn't, you might not. And the problem with that perspective is it denies grace. This is not a parable of judgment day. You want a parable of judgment day? It's at the end of all four Gospels. And it's not a parable, it's a reality. Judgment day was the cross. And if your life is hid in Christ then your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago and you are washed clean and you are covered and you're good to go. Well, so what does this parable mean? This parable is regarding how the nations of the earth will be judged. 
at the end of the tribulation there will be a judgment time and the nations are going to be separated and judged sheep and the goats and the difference the judgment the difference will be how they treated Israel and the Jewish people where do you get that? Because Jesus says, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. Don't ever forget Jesus was a Jew. The way you serve my brothers, the way you care for them, that's going to be the determining factor for the nations that are in judgment at the end of that tribulation period. I believe the Bible is very clear about that. Now, however, Jesus identifies him with these brothers of mine, the Jewish people, and we serve the king as we serve his people. And I do believe that's important. And I do believe it matters how we treat the people of Israel. How we as a church fellowship, how we as individuals pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Psalm 122 tells us. And I've talked all about that other times. We won't go into that right now. But that being understood, there is an underlying principle here that I think applies to all of us. Beyond our treatment of the Jewish people, we serve the king as we serve Period. We serve the king as we serve. As we respond to the needs of the king, which are the needs of his people all over the world, we are like Shobi and Makir and Barzillai. We serve the king, and as we do so, not only are we serving the king and serving people, but we are becoming more like the king with every act of service. And that's the best news. We're going to be talking about kids' ministry, and this is not a commercial, but understand, we're going to be talking about kids' ministry, children's ministry a lot in the next few weeks, because there's a need. And as Michelle and I, and sure, we met this morning, and we were talking, and, um, and I told Michelle, you know, on an annual basis, at least, you're going to have to, con- just, children's ministry is a continual pattern of recruitment, getting people involved, letting them know there's a need, bringing people in, because there's, there's always an attrition factor. And the extent to which we can engage and serve the children of this fellowship which are over a hundred, by the way. We are serving Jesus. When you hear someone stand up here and say, hey, we need help in this ministry or that ministry, we need help in kids' ministry, please understand, we're not standing up here and going, and uh, you better do it or you're just a bad Christian. And you should feel guilty. (laughs) Sitting there, taking it in. Oh, all comfortable listening to Bible study and worship. <laughs> While their knees, their children starving out here, you know. That's not the point. The point is this. Children's ministry, like any ministry, is an opportunity for you to become more like Jesus through service. That's the deal. That's why any of us are asked to get involved in any ministry. This is why the Lord calls us to service. Because it makes us like Him. Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give His life a ransom for many. And these three guys, man, their names are synonymous with service. This is all we hear about them. Barzillai, Makir, and Shobi. You know, except for the possibility that some might name their children after them, we're not going to hear about these guys anymore. Their hallmark in Scripture is these guys are servants of the King. What a great hallmark to have. We're never more like Jesus than when we serve. There's an old story that was told back in World War II about a, uh, a soldier who was walking through the streets with just a devastated German town. And they're on this, the streets of this town that were just starting to come back to life. A few businesses were beginning to open and there was a bakery there that was just reopened. And pressed up against the window of the bakery was a little child. 
and he's looking at the at the the buns and the donuts and and he's just you know, his little breath is just puffing out on the on the window and he's watching and the soldier sees this and so he goes into the bakery and he he buys a, a bag of a dozen donuts and takes it out and and hands it to the child and the kid just can't believe this and as the soldier turns to walk away the child says mister are you God because we are never more like Jesus than when we serve now in the next chapter we're going to see Absalom in a forced attempt to wrest the kingdom out of his father David's hands but what David understands and Absalom misses and this is one last thing to send you home with tonight you can't force the kingdom and we're going to talk about that on Sunday. Jesus said in Matthew 11:12, "The days of John the Baptist until now, from then until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men try to take it by force. Violent men try to take it by force, but remember, we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. It cannot be ripped out of God's hands. It cannot be forced. It can only be received. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for for handing us a kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be shaken or forced or squeezed down to fit our personal agenda to look the way we want it to look. Thank you, Lord, that the church, even today, is not a matter of man's design. Jesus, as you said, I will build my church. And we pray, Lord, can we just be a part of that? Can we just be among those who serve like Jesus and watch you build your kingdom? And for our part, Lord, if it's teaching a child on a Sunday morning, if it's working with teenagers through the week, Lord, if it's if it's just showing up to take out the trash, if it's leading a Bible study, having a, a small group, or just taking someone out to lunch and loving on them, Father, could we just have the privilege and the honor of being servants in your kingdom the unshakable kingdom I pray Father that in spite of any turmoil that may happen in our lives that we will cling to the unshakable kingdom Father help us to grow up in our salvation confident that one day we're going to serve literally alongside Jesus and we're excited for that day Father, go with us this evening. We pray that you write these words on our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.